Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great pleasure to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Eve Spangler. Eve is a sociologist and a human and civil rights activist. For the last decade, her work has focused on the Israel-Palestine conflict, and her new book is Understanding Israel-Palestine, Race, Nation, and Human Rights in the Conflict. Eve Spangler, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you, David. I'm delighted to be here. And thank you for reading the book. (laughs) Well, thank you for writing the book. That actually takes a lot more effort than than reading. And this is a wonderful book. It it sort of explicitly presents itself as for beginners, but, uh, and not that I'm not a beginner, but I think it's actually a wonderful book for everyone and ought to be a textbook in in schools across the United States. And I hope it becomes that. Um, But in, in the preface, you described uh, quite effectively how you came to this issue that you hadn't been working on before. Can you just describe briefly how that happened? Oh, sure. I think any major commitment, and I've been doing this work now for about 12 years, is partly fate and partly coincidence. So the the, the near causes, as I was, uh, a colleague of mine came and said, you know, I've organized, and I'm afraid I may not have a large audience. You've got to come to this talk with me. And it was a talk on Israel-Palestine uh, with a Palestinian academic and an Israeli academic. Uh, it was a topic about which I knew next to nothing. It was not something I'd attended to before. And I heard the Palestinian speak. He spoke first, and he described the Nakba, which uh, is Arabic for catastrophe, of the expulsion of Palestinians. Uh, connected to the creation of the State of Israel and from 1947 to 1949. And I thought, wow, gosh, I you know hadn't known that. But, you know, that's the Palestinian. Let's see what the Israeli has to say. And then the Israeli uh, academic got up and pointed to the Palestinian and said, everything he said is true and worse. So I was really startled by that. And, uh, and I got intrigued. I got hooked. And you know, the university worked as it should. I started reading. I developed a course. I thought, eh, you can't do this all from book learning. So to go with the course, I developed a trip. And now I take students every year over winter break. And we talk to human rights activists on both sides. Um, and so, you know, the uni- and then having done seven of these trips and taught the course, I thought, I'd like to reach a larger audience than the students I can teach at Boston College. So... Then I wrote the book, and here we are. If I'm not mistaken, the uh, the Israeli who spoke at that event that sort of opened your eyes and brought you into this was a sibling of Miko Peled, who's been on this program and has a, a wonderful book himself. Am I yes. am I remembering that right? Um, quite a quite a family making quite a contribution to uh, to our understanding. Yes. I think their oh. sister wrote a wonderful wonderful book on Israeli schools and, and uh, social studies curricula showing how the Israeli curriculum kind of immunizes their students against the human rights argument. 
it's so uh, it's quite a distinguished family. Yeah, and that one I have not yet read and will need to. Um, the, uh, the the book that you've written uh, after all of this uh, decade of research and investigation is is quite uh, densely packed with information. We can't begin <laughs> to cover it all, but uh, maybe we can uh, start or start where where you think best in terms of the historical background and the birth of this idea of Zionism. Uh, where did this come from? How did this begin? Well, it begins, uh, I mean, historians, of course, love to play the game of old antecedents, and you go back to the first amoeba crawling out of the sea, but for the, the practical circumstances now, Zionism begins in the 19th century, and it, it's grounded in the experience of Jews in Christian Europe, not, by the way, Jews in the Arab world, who were generally much better treated than Jews in the Christian world in Europe, some of whom decided uh, that they had to leave. Now, let me back up a moment and say that I think for American audiences, the best analogy here is with our own civil rights movement. You have Jews in Christendom in Europe. You have uh, African Americans in the United States. Both of them are a mistreated population. They, you know, obviously we know the black history of coming in slavery, families being sold apart, people being lynched. Jim Crow, uh, all that ugly history, and very similar things in Europe from murderousness to, you know, a milder kind of prejudice, but always exclusion and marginalization. The vast majority of black Americans and European Jews respond to that with an attempt at assimilation. You know, the ordinary work of life, you get your kids off to school, you go to work, you pick up the dry cleaning on the way home, you remember to send your mother-in-law a birthday card. All of those things are enough for most people, and so they want to go along to get along. Some of the more enterprising want to reform the system that mistreats them. For African Americans, that's the civil rights movement. For European Jews, often it was socialism. A small minority decide uh, they, that nothing they do will work, they can't stay here, they need to go somewhere else. So you get the Back to Africa movement, uh, in the American civil rights experience, and you get Zionism in the European Jewish experience. And the parallels are really quite startling, with the exception that we have to say up front, Israel is much more economically successful than Liberia. But really, the parallels beyond that are striking. Both of those movements, back to Africa, Zionism, do not appeal to most of the people that they want to address. People say, you want to go where? You want to do what? Forget that. So they triumph because their leaders are extremely organizationally skillful in lobbying governments to support the effort and raising money and recruiting settlers. Uh, they do this with allies. The allies are a very mixed bag. Some of them are real human rights people who just think, I'm going to support people going where they want to go. But many of them are racist. Many allies of the Back to Africa movement just wanted to help get blacks out of white America or Jews out of Christian Europe. So the allies are a mixed bag. The choice of place is opportunistic. It's where great powers will give them a, a foothold. Uh, both movements involve riding roughshod over the rights of indigenous people. So, um, you know, I think the way to understand Zionism maybe is to think about the Back to Africa movement. Uh, it's a movement, it's a political project to create an ethno-religiously exclusive state 
in a particular place, which is historically an extraordinarily multinational place. So it's a project that doesn't really fit comfortably into its environment. To be fair to Zionism in the 19th century, pretty much everybody's idea of nationalism was that it was somehow an ethno-religiously pure group. Every little tribal it has its statelet. You know, we call that often balkanization, and we think it's not a good thing. And certainly in the 21st century, I think every nation has to struggle with multiculturalism. But Zionism is an ethno-religious project to create a ethno-religiously exclusive state. But was it always uh, and universally in the mind of every Zionist and supporter of Zionism a, a project that intended to ethnically cleanse a populated area of hundreds of thousands of people, or were there a variety uh, of approaches uh, and strategies in mind within, uh, within the Zionist community? Uh, there were a variety of approaches. Um you can think about there was a group thought that you can think of as cultural Zionists who wanted to create a homeland for Jews uh, in Palestine and who uh, didn't insist on the state form. And there were some rather smart people who were of that persuasion. Martin Buber, for example, said that excessive nationalism would lead to, quote, a tiny state of Jews completely militarized and unsustainable. He, therefore, was something in favor of something much more bicultural. Uh, Hannah Arendt uh, said a Jewish homeland, homeland should never be sacrificed to the pseudo-sovereignty of a Jewish state built on Arab suppression. So there were people who early on saw that if you framed your project as displacing the indigenous population so you could be ethno-religiously pure, you were going to have a, a problem with that. Sadly, the cultural Zionist possibility was the fork in the road, and quickly the, the Zionist project went down the other fork, which is to create an ethno-religiously exclusive state. And so to this day, what is... And uh, let me also say, I guess the cultural Zionist variant could be revived, but there's very little evidence that anyone in the Netanyahu uh, era wants to do that. Um, so today, Israel says it wants three things. It wants to be democratic, because it's allied with the West. It wants to be Jewish. And it wants to have all the land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. Well, those three things don't go together, because half the people on that land are not Jews. And so, you know, the choices are, if you want to be Jewish and democratic, you have to give up the settlements. You have to retreat to an area where Jews are the supermajority and build your Jewish state there. The present government of Israel has said very clearly in word and deed that that's a non-starter for them. You can be democratic and have all the land if you're willing to become a multi-ethnic, multicultural state of all the people under your control. The present Israeli government has made it very clear that's a non-starter for them. So what they've chosen is to be Jewish and have all the land, and that requires either suppressing or expelling half the people under their control. And that's, I think, how to understand the present situation. 
Yeah, I, I'm not sure about the the option of being Jewish and democratic. Uh, I mean, do you have to do you have to stay Jewish? Do you not have freedom of thought and and freedom of religion? Uh, do, can you not? Uh, can people not come and go? Does it not interact with the rest of the world? It, it, it would seem the the only viable option uh, is is to be democratic and inclusive and and secular in terms of of government. Well, I certainly agree with you on that. Um, you know, part of the reason, you know, I, I should say we, we didn't uh, mention this, that I'm Jewish, and I come from a family devastated by the Holocaust. And I think many people with that sitting in the middle of their family history have become Zionist uh, in an uncritical and self-contradictory way that, you know, we were so oppressed and so victimized, we have to now have a a room of our own, a safe house. Um, and I think Zionism absolutely fails if that's what the project is supposed to be. It has failed to make Jews safe. Uh, you know, I have family who are quite Zionist, and yet uh, when one child marries and goes hiking in the Swiss Alps, everybody's ecstatic. When the other child marries and spends their honeymoon scuba diving in a lot, uh, my my family members sit by the phone waiting to hear whether their kids got blown up or not. So even Zionist Jews know that Israel is the least safe place for Jews to be. Yeah. I personally was never interested in Zionism, and no one in my family was, because I think even had there been no Palestinians and no contestation about the land, it's a project of self-ghettoization. And, you know, I want to be a citizen of the whole world, uh, free to come and go, free to think as I please and believe as I please, and not be required to, you know, expound some particular doctrine. So, uh, yes, I think you're right. There's a contradiction between being, you know, having an established state religion and freedom of thought, freedom of movement. That said, and I didn't say this in the book, there are countries in Europe that have established state churches, the Anglican Church in England, for example. And while uh, Pakistanis and other immigrants of color in England have a lot of complaints about England, none of them are saying it's because of the Anglican Church that we're, uh, you know, oppressed. So there are ways in which church and state can be wedded without so much damage to minorities within your state. The problem in Zionism is that it really wants to expel uh, everybody who's not Jewish and therefore has feels it has a stake in making life miserable and burdensome for Palestinians. Indeed. We're speaking with Eve Spangler, whose book is called Understanding Israel-Palestine, Race, Nation, and Human Rights in the Conflict. Uh, speaking of race, you, you draw some disturbing parallels between uh, modern Israel and the, the racism and, and abuse that Jews were fleeing in Europe. Uh, and you talk about a, a, a couple you're in, in touch with who are trying to uh, adopt a, a baby in Israel and, and other examples. Can you talk about racism now in, in Israel? Oh, my. Well, that example, to share it very quickly, I have friends who were trying to adopt a child. And when they had cleared all the psychological and financial screens, they sat down with a social worker who said to them, all right, now it's just a matter of getting on a wait list and waiting your turn. If you insist on having a blonde, blue-eyed child, uh, there's a five-year wait. If you're willing to take 
you know, any child, you're probably going to be waiting a year. But if you are willing to take a defective child, and the, you know, this is eerie for the people who flee Nazism to, to refer to people as defective, if you want a defective child, you can pretty much have one next week. So my friends looked at each other and gulped, and they said, well, you know, what is the nature of the challenge? Are we talking about physical disabilities? Are we talking about developmental delays? What do we need to be thinking about in terms of health care and educational planning? And the social worker said to them, oh, no, we never put those children up for adoption. Nobody wants them. A defective child is dark-skinned. Ouch. Yeah. That's pretty scary, but I think the more scary thing, if you think about what happened this week of, you know, a settler opening the windows of a home and throwing a firebomb into a family home where an 18-month-old child is lying asleep and their four-year-old sibling and parents, the 18-month-old child has already died, the four-year-old is in critical condition. Uh, You know, how is it that people fleeing Hitler and the Holocaust throw firebombs at sleeping babies. How does that happen? Um, you know, and of course it happens partly by individual choice for which that individual is responsible, and he's perhaps no more representative of his society than Timothy McVeigh is of American society. But that man who made his individual choice in doing this stands on a playing field that tilts in the direction of making that choice easier. And one of the ugliest ways it does is that in the words of Rabbi Eli Ben-Dahan, who is now the second-in-command of the military authority that governs Palestinians in the West Bank, and is a rabbi, has said repeatedly and publicly, Palestinians are subhuman beasts. Now, you know, most people just are repelled by the racism of that remark. But I think there's something even more serious going on there, the monotheism, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, posit that there's a single source of creation, that we are all the children of that single creative force, and we are all therefore brothers and sisters. And that implies certain ethical obligations we have to each other. If you're a rabbi, you're well aware of this. And if you nevertheless want to oppress Palestinians, but they're people and you have moral obligations to them, then one way out of that dilemma is to say they're not people, they're subhuman, right? And that tilts the playing field. That same settler who chose to kill that baby, you know, lives in a, in a community where he watches his fellow settlers burning Palestinian olive groves and sees the Israeli army standing by to protect the settlers, to protect the arsonists. So everything in that man's playing field tilts in the direction of making it easy to open that window and lob that firebomb at that baby. And uh, this is unsustainable. Yeah, indeed. And if we if we don't start thinking of non-human beings and the environment itself as having rights, as some nations' constitutions yeah. now do, we're going to make things unsustainable for humans of, of whatever uh, description we, we view those humans as. So we're going to have to we're going to have to overcome the, the whole basis yeah. of that way of thinking. But uh, I, I think that we're beginning to. Many people, at least, are beginning to. And and opinion is moving. I think your book, uh, Eve, is is 
is uniquely uh, comprehensive and historical, but I think it's part of a trend. And there was an article in the Washington Post just recently that said, Bernie Sanders may lose the left on Palestine, showing polling that the people who share his leftist views on other topics have moved significantly on mm-hmm. Israel-Palestine, and he hasn't. You know, is that yeah. is, is yeah, there well, is that happening? Uh, I do believe so. I think if you look at American history, recent American history, that is my lifetime and yours, um, the civil rights movement, the peace movement the women's movement, the environmental movement, America changes, has changed its mind in a very positive way over the last 50, 60 years. And often that work is done in the churches, synagogues, mosques, and on campuses. And certainly those are the places now where you're seeing a different kind of conversation uh, about Israel and Palestine, where you know people are discovering that there are Palestinians that they're human beings and they have rights and that any kind of long-term sustainable solution is going to have to assume that everybody who's there is going to stay there and is going to be treated right. Um, We have instruments uh, for advancing those uh, positions. We have a a growing strength in the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement, uh, which the Israelis are getting quite hysterical about, which to me is an indication that it's having some bite. Um, we have all kinds of tools, and we have, more importantly, and, and this is uh, the question of hope that I'm speaking to here, we have partners, both in Israel and in Palestine. Uh, there are people who know that the issues of the 21st century are environmental sustainability and multiculturalism, social and environmental sustainability, and who are working on those issues in their own communities and across the border. So there are groups working, Israeli-Palestinian working groups, you know, working very hard to figure out what would a just water solution look like, what would just construction look like, what would it be to honor the right of refugees to return. Um, That's all not much reported in the press, but it's bubbling along beneath the surface. And so I think we have tools and we have partners uh, to do this work. What what do you make, just briefly, of the agreement that has been reached uh, in the face of uh, Israeli opposition, governmental and popular opposition between Iran and the United States and the and the other governments, uh, including this uh, prediction by some that if Israel is seen as uh, killing this agreement that is actually popular among uh, Americans, if you ask the question in an informative way, and, and popular among American Jews, uh, if Israel is seen as killing it. Uh, there's this potential for a, a, a new burst of anti-Semitism. Is that a, is that a well, legitimate I, fear? I want, well, I want, first of all, to distinguish very carefully between criticism of Israel, which is legitimate, and anti-Semitism, which is racism. Um, and so uh, I certainly think uh, uh, several things. If Israel manages to uh, create such havoc in the U.S. Congress, that Congress people vote a majority of them against what I believe is to be in the best interest of their own country, that certainly will have consequences. I don't think it will entirely destroy the Iran deal because Europe is already moving rapidly in the direction of of regularizing trade relations and lifting the sanctions. 
so it would create America as an isolated outlier, which uh, I don't think is in our interest. It would also really uh, begin to unravel the very, I think, counterproductive work that APAC has done in making it unsafe for politicians to criticize Israel or to put American interests first. It would tie Israel to the Republican Party when APEC has spent more than a generation trying to be bipartisan. And so that would shift the dynamic between America and Israel. And since we are so heavily the funders of the occupation, we give Israel you know, unlimited uh, financial, diplomatic, and military support. If you really damage the relationship between Israel and the United States, you dramatically shift the power balance also in the Middle East. So it's, um, it's very hard. Anybody who predicts the future is, of course, asked to be made a fool. But uh, I think that if uh, Israel succeeds in uh, rounding up enough American Congress people to defeat this treaty, it won't defeat the treaty, but it will isolate the United States. And, of course, it's it's only a partial step in terms of defying Israel, as it was, you know, we're going to do this treaty despite your wishes, but here's lots more free weapons uh, to, to right. make you feel better. So, so we're not, not quite to the point of denying the weaponry yet. Um, but we, we have just a, a short time left, a couple of minutes. Um, what, what can people do to help? Uh, how can people best get involved? Where should we be going? And, uh, and, and in particular, what we, can we do to get people to, to put this book of yours into classrooms? Oh, the music to my ears. Such a lovely question. Well, I'm hoping lots and lots of people who are also academics are listening to your show and thinking, hmm, I've got to take a look at that book. Uh, I'm certainly available for guest speaking and, you know, for, for working with people uh, I'm uh, active through Jewish Voices for Peace on a curriculum committee to make not only mine, but other course curricula available more widely to people. Um, I think this is hard work to do alone. There's hardly anything one person alone can do that will make much difference. So I think it's important if you're doing political work to have support. And there are Middle East study groups in virtually every church in America, I think. Um, there are SJPs, and also if you're interested in Expand with Israel groups on pretty much every campus in America. SJP so, meaning students, students for sorry, Peace students and Justice for, in Palestine? Right, Students for Justice in Palestine. Um, so, you know, there are plenty of places to go to begin to educate yourself and to find a group of friends with whom you can work, uh, because it's, it's terribly difficult if you're trying to do something significant. Uh, alone. And I do think it's also very important to say that going there and seeing it, you only have to see it once. If you walk down the street in Hebron once, that's divided by concrete barriers down the middle, well, not the middle, you know, one quarter, three quarters, and Jews get the, and, and the Israeli government uses here the term Jews, not Israelis, to the wide side of the street, because some Israeli citizens are Palestinian ancestry, they're not allowed there either. When you see a street divided by concrete barriers with Israeli Jews on one side and Palestinians on the other, you only have to see that one. Um, and so I also recommend people finding uh, social justice tourism, of which there is a lot. 
Um, there are certainly Christian tour groups like the Siraj Center at Bethlehem that uh, run social justice tours for people. And uh, going and seeing for yourself, I know that's a bit of an expensive alternative, but it is eye-opening. Yeah, or at, or at least meeting with someone who's been there and taken photographs sure. and come back to talk about it, right? Sure, sure. And there are lots and lots of those people around. I, I encourage you to do all of those things and to pick up a copy of Eve Spangler's book, Understanding Israel-Palestine, Race, Nation, and Human Rights in the Conflict. Eve Spangler, thank you very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. This is wonderful. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm delighted. Uh, and, and good luck to you and, and your audience. Thank, thank you, you very much. Okay, bye-bye. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.